You're listening to You in the Ring, a podcast from CFUV 101.9 FM that explores untold stories from UVic's past and present. So, let's get started. You're listening to CFUV. I'm Dakota, the producer of You in the Ring. Today's episode is on creative acts of resistance. The stories shared today tie activism and liberation and the many ways that this can be done. We start off with a young, non-binary youth named Ari. I interviewed them because they had participated in one of the first gender-neutral coming of age age or rites of passage camps this past summer in the Northwest Territories. Here's them to tell you more about it. My name is Ariana Cardinal, but I go by Ari. Uh, I identify gender fluid. My pronouns are they and them, and yeah. I knew I wanted to do my rites of passage, but I was very, like, confused and kind of didn't want to do it because I thought, oh, I would just have to do the girls' rites of passage, but identify gender fluid. And when I told my mom about this, she was like, well, there is um, a gender-neutral rites of passage or gender-fluid rites of passage, um, and I would be the first one to ever go to it. And I was like, oh, this is really cool. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know stuff would come out of it, like I would be doing a interview with CBC or that I would be doing an interview with you. How do the Rites of Passage camps work, like, usually? Um, well, I'm not sure how it usually works because mm-hmm. I've only ever gone to mine. Totally. But me and my mom, we arrived at the camp and we just sat around the fire and um, just hung out for a little while and then we set up camp in a teepee. Um, I didn't really like the teepee because there was always a bunch of spiders in there and they fell down from the <laughs> ceiling. <laughs> but it was pretty nice. Um, there was, we usually smudged in the morning and we would make some nice healthy breakfast. Always put on a lot of bug spray because there was a lot and a lot of mosquitoes and I did not want to get eaten alive. Mm -hmm. But we did quite a few stuff, like I made a bundle and I painted it. And we also picked sweet grass and me and my mom picked some mint. So how did it like feel to be there? It felt good, like I felt very supported and very happy that I had all these people that cared about me. There wasn't any other youth because I guess not many people want to be too open about being gender fluid or non-binary or anything. Okay. So it was kind of just like for you and your experience. Yeah. And to open up the space for other youth to partake in. Yeah. Yeah. That's super profound. Wow. And so like, did you notice like parts of yourself change or how did you feel afterwards? I felt more, I don't know, like whole, 
like I felt better and there was something there that made me feel good. I can't bring it back with me here, but I still do feel it a little bit, but differently. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. it's not just people that I didn't know before, but it's now my family and my friends and teachers, and you know, pretty much everyone. Totally. Yeah, how do you think, like, this will, like, move forward? Or do you think that the camp will grow? Or do you think that, like, how do you, th- and how will it move forward for you? Um, I'm not sure. I hope it will grow and more people go to it and feel comfortable too. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm pretty sure there's going to be a camp, not a, gen- like, not a rites of passage camp, but just a camp for um, people that identify gender fluid or non-binary to go to mm-hmm. on the same campground of where the rites of passage was. And I think I want to go because mm-hmm. there's not many things like that. Totally. That like, yeah, because it's kind of this thing where it's like, you don't have to talk about that part of yourself necessarily unless you want to, right? Yeah. But everyone is already like in the same kind of position. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Because at school that would be kind of different, right? Yeah. Because there's a lot of explaining, and I just usually don't um, tell people that I'm gender fluid, but I don't correct them about anything. Mm-hmm. If they call me a boy, I'm just like, okay, sure. And if they call me a girl, I'm just like, yeah, whatever. Because mm-hmm. there's no point in correcting strangers because I'm not going to see them again. And also the fact that, you know, maybe they could think differently. And that is kind of scary. Once when I was, I think I was 10, the month before my birthday, I stayed with my auntie for a month. And I found about out about gender fluid. And that whole month that I was there, I was just thinking about it and like well maybe this is what I am and yeah once I got back I told my mom and just the whole thing started of people started using my pronouns and Mm -hmm. just it was very different Mm -hmm. but I kind of liked it because then I could be myself. What do you hope your experience can offer to others? Um, I just hope people get a better understanding of it and they realize that I mean I'm 12 and I know who I am and even if you're like 80 years old you can still find out who you are. In this next interview I spoke with Maquila who in this interview identifies as James Dakota. He spoke to what was happening in his home territories of moving back to living on the land and what this meant for him and those around him. I'm James Dakota Smith. I come from Alert Bay. Uh, my father is Bill Smith. He's Quagilf. Um, his great-grandparents were Mary and Johnny Wanick. My mother is Tsatsakwa Sambas. Her Parents were Basil Lambers and Hilda Scow. Uh, so my grandmother was Kwikwasutinuch and my grandfather was Mumptagila. 
So I wanted to talk to you about the tiny house build and just about like kind of what it represents. I was um, kind of involved in the last tiny house build they were doing for uh, the tiny house warriors for communist manual and um, me and my mother uh, Tsatsa we were um, doing a kind of workshop outside and afterwards we were talking with Seb my mother said uh, I had a dream Seb that you built me a house and then uh, Bryden turns to Seb and he says we were just talking about this the other day actually and so that's that's how it happened and uh, yeah so we've been working with uh, these this group of people from UVic and all over the place uh, for a couple of years now um, we started with um, working with Ernest Alfred from who was a hereditary chief of the of the Numgis when he occupied Swanson and then a bunch of uh, Kwakwakwak women uh, occupied Midsummer. So there's a fish farm on both of those islands. And um, that's when we started working with these people. So we've had an ongoing relationship mm-hmm. for a while. And um, it kind of, yeah, so it's just kind of evolved, like, really organically. And... Um, my my role in it um, was basically like to supervise, mm-hmm. <laughs> just making sure you know everything is done right in accordance with um, like uh, protocol for our tribe and um, and the the design of the house and and all that. Um, I've sort of taken a, a little lead on that. Um, also. I've done a lot of like survey work uh, this past summer, going into the woods and taking a look hand uh, firsthand at uh, my territories and sort of what's the the resource extraction that's been going on there, and um, also looking at potential spots to place the the little big house <laughs> is what we're calling it, cute uh, CB do little big house. Like, have you come up to parts where it's not in alignment with um, what protocol needs to be? And how have you, like, interacted with things that need to be changed or, like... Hmm. Right. Um, it's been... It's, a, it's a kind of uh, tricky because while it's a Kwakwakiwakh uh, style house and it's for uh, the Mumtgila of the Kwakwakiwakw we're building it on or it was built on Coast Salish territories mm-hmm. right and so uh, but it was good we had uh, somebody to do protocol from these territories and to um, Kwakwakiwakw presence in these territories is like it's very it's been around for a long time. Uh, the Mungo Martin House in front of the Royal BC Museum, that's that's a Kwakwakiwak-style big house. Um, there's a totem pole uh, in front of the, the museum. That's it, that's a memorial totem pole for 
my uh, great-grandfather, Gideon Wanick. Um, so it's just... As like, I'm, I'm always going to be, like, I'm always going to have a presence here. Even when I leave, I have a... Uh, I'm still going to be hosted here in, in, a, in a manner of, of speaking. So, yeah, uh, that's been a bit tricky, a bit of a... Um, just something that's always been on my mind, or is, is more present as the build was was uh, gearing up. Well, or like settlers think about the fact of like all these like dimensions and all these nations collaborating, or they're like just think about it like oh we're just gonna build this thing in solidarity and that's that. They don't like. Do you think that they think about the interactions I, of nations? I don't think that's the first thing that comes to anybody's mind, um, but especially the, the settler organizers and, and such. Um, but it, when you when you work in this kind of area, you get told real fast, mm -hmm. and you find out real fast. Um, and then it's just up to to these people, these organizers how serious they're going to take their warnings, how serious they're going to take these teachings that people bring to them. Some do and some don't. Mm -hmm. um, the group I've been working with has been very receptive. So you do feel like it's been a respectful kind of journey, this whole process? Yeah, yeah. A bit of a, it's a, a learning journey, too, for, mm -hmm. for many people. Um, just highlighting Mumptagila has been a thing because the Mumptagila are the only tribe that isn't recognized by the government. Okay. Of the, of the, the only Kwakwakiwakw tribe that isn't recognized by the government. We are the only ones who don't have an INAC system. Um, that's all actually really complicated too. Because the reason for that is um, back in the early uh, 1900s, uh, the government was getting the mump was trying to get the Mumptagila to move from Eatsikin and Madopi, uh, so that's on the other side of the Johnstone Strait, um, Call Inlet, and uh, they wanted us to move over to uh, Carluquis, uh Turner Island. That's where the Tlaoitsis were, um, and so. They want us to amalgamate, and, and we did, um, like unofficially, like we moved over and stuff like that. And then they, um, the process took a long time. And they combined our, our, our monies into the same account in Ottawa. And then they promised all these sort of like infrastructure, uh, school, um, hospital, and stuff like that. And that was supposed to be. Um, that was something that the the local, that uh, the chiefs of those tribes uh, wanted, and um, and there were many letters requesting that the government hurry up, and the Indian agents hurry up and, and get this this done, so that um, their kids could be near them instead mm -hmm. of um, in the residential school St. Michael's on Alert Bay. Mm -hmm. um, that didn't end up happening, and so everyone just left Carlequis. And many years later, my mother moved back with her father and a bunch of uh, her other family members, uh, brothers, sisters, and um, 
they went back there and they saw all the um, the old the old houses and stuff that people lived in. Uh, it was like literally there were still like plates like set and stuff like that at the table. So people left in such a haste just to go be with their children. Mm-hmm. Um, another point about that amalgamation is that it was supposed to be that uh, even though the tribes had been amalgamated, the hereditary chiefs of their respective tribes were still, they still held uh, equal power mm-hmm. and say over their own their own peoples. So it was like, while well, they're amalgamated, technically, there's still a, a respect for their um, distinct uh, histories and culture. Um, but unfortunately, uh, because... So, so the Tlaiwitsis are Ainak. Mm-hmm. And eventually, um, one of the Kikame's uh, uh, chiefs took the uh, Mumptigila. It was Mumptigila Tlawitzis, or Tlawitzis Mumptigila, like hyphen on, on, our, on our status cards. Yeah. Um, but then they took that off in like the 90s or the 80s or something mm-hmm. like that. And it was done um, without any consultation. The people, nobody really knew why. Um, but that's something that my that really uh, perturbed my grandfather Basil, because uh, he was uh, a Montegilla chief, so he, he held uh, one of those seats, and um, he fought. You know, to he even held a, a feast at the Eve River rest stop area, just off of the highway, going up island. And that was a, a feast for Mumptigila independence. So this project, uh, in many ways, is, is um, trying to help fulfill his dream that he, he passed away without seeing uh, fulfilled. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, it's more than that, obviously. It's about... Um, Asserting sovereignty um, in the eyes of not just you know uh, peers, but um, the government and resource extraction companies, which because we're not federally recognized, they don't have to consult us mm-hmm. when they go into our territories. Um, it's really complicated. Like they, because. Bound, territorial boundaries like overlap a lot, and so multiple tribes will have uh, claim or say to uh, certain areas, and that's just natural in our in our culture. But when the government comes in and they want to take some trees or they want to put a fish farm in or something like that, they they will go to some the person with what they will say is has the most say or, or, or most not the most say but the most um, that they see as has, has most um, qualifications for uh, claims to those territories and that way they can kind of pit tribes against each other and because we aren't recognized, they can just go to whoever else, and if, you know, they can do whatever they want, you know. 
feel like that's part of like this the the purpose right now is to have these like to talk about this like to like part of these projects and like you know doing this work is so you can actually spread the word about what's really happening and change that needs to happen yeah definitely because that's the underlying issue of, of why it's important to um for the monk Tagila to assert um independence um to make claims to our territories and to go back to our our you know, our homes you know and uh, village sites that haven't been occupied for you know over 60 years um, the main focus of this this build was that we could do uh like three three things we could uh, address um the fish farm industry, which has been uh, sort of like matriarch camp, mm-hmm. which is my mother's sort of um, sort of uh, what do you call it? Almost like an affinity group. There's always mm-hmm. been like different people coming in and out, and female-centered um, uh, settler woman to uh, um, a woman from the the Cowichan and. Uh, and uh, Cree, mm-hmm. in a new Cree, and then simply just um, living off of the land, you know, and, and and creating that atmosphere and that space for other Montegil to come back, and hopefully um, it becomes re becomes a village. Mm-hmm. That would be that would be my dream, you know, and to really uplift uh, our people, our tribe. And our, and our different namimas. So, yeah, so there's many different facets to this, many different families. Um, we still, we still potlatch, you know, mm-hmm. we're rec- like, we recognize ourselves, you know, mm-hmm. we, you know, uh, there's been many Moctegilla potlatches. It's just that people are making moves without addressing us now. Um, another, another issue that um, this project addresses would also be um, homelessness, mm-hmm. um, tiny houses. You know, um, that's a great, it's a great thing, and it could be utilized in the cities mm-hmm. for um, people who are at risk, indigenous people, uh, uh, settlers, and um, mm-hmm. all over. You know, I'm, I'm seeing a lot of um, people right now making moves towards that. I guess what I'm saying is that there's like it, it brings up a lot of other issues, especially um, the idea that you know you're either a res indigenous person or you're a city indigenous person, which is like it's that's there's so many layers to that, you know. Like the res isn't our home, right? That the fact that that we we were semi nomadic people, so having a stationary one way automatically it. it it alienates our culture in a certain way mm-hmm. and uh, changes it. And we're not specifically on our, on, our, on our homelands. I don't even... Lerpe wasn't even um, a village. Mm-hmm. I don't think it was, it was uh, a graveyard. And, and, and here in the city, you know, um, it's like... The, <laughs> these, are, these are somebody's territories, right? And they have to get up every day and they have to look at this. Mm-hmm. You know, um... I could say that I'm relatively lucky in the sense that, while yeah, my territories are being 
um, farmed for their trees. Um, they're, you know, it's not covered with concrete and, and, you know, just all this, like, capitalism. In this whole process, if, like, if it was, like, my, I could envision it and I could create it in, in the way that I see fit. Of course, I can't because I'm one person. And our tribe is many people, many chiefs, and uh, many families. Can, you know, all this, this has to be done with everybody's consent. And what we need is um, uh, self-sufficiency. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, I definitely wouldn't want. Yeah, we have to be recognized. Well, all nations should be recognized. Mm -hmm. Period. Mm -hmm. They just need to be recognized and respected. That consent. We don't need to be a part of their system. We shouldn't have to be a part of their system in order for that to happen. Lastly, I interview Hannah Gintis, who is a singer-songwriter and uses her music as a tool for her own liberation and for the liberation of those who have come before her. Tante. My name is Hannah Gentis. I um, grew up on Stony Nakoda territory, which is now called Cochrane, Alberta. And um, my mother's side, we are mixed European ancestry. And then on my father's side, uh, we are Soto Metis. Our roots trace back to St. Laurent, Manitoba. Um, just part of the Chartrand family in Desjardins. Yeah, um, I've been here for six years. I go to, I, here at the university, I'm doing a double major in Indigenous Studies and Environmental Studies. And uh, I've been performing around Victoria for the past three years, four years, and um, school can get in the way, but it's definitely very healing for me and yeah feel like more of myself when I get back into it so so I kind of wanted to ask you about like how you started playing or when you started playing as well yeah um so I have a pretty musical family on my dad's side on my Métis side and started teaching myself guitar at home with the help of my brother and a friend and it just Did you start like songwriting at the same time as you were learning to play I started songwriting probably it was my first year of college. I was living in Castlegar, um, and yeah, I mostly started writing then. That's when I actually started to show people what I was writing, and the first few, you know, were horrible, horrid, <laughs> but <laughs> as expected, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah, I've definitely grown a lot, and being a part of the Indigenous community at Camosun and now here had, had really helped me, and yeah, inspired a lot of songs, so. Mm -hmm. mm. And how do you feel, like, when you write a song, or what is that process like? Sometimes it just comes to me, and it comes out all at once, and then sometimes it's a real process, and you can kind of tell in, in the songs, and some of them I've forgotten, and they just kind of have floated away, and... Mm -hmm. um, yeah, the important ones really stick, especially because people, you know, they feel something too. And yeah, it's it's pretty incredible to be 
to play it in circles and to feel that sense of community and wholeness even you know do you want to do like two songs right now yeah two for sure three songs and then I might ask you some questions after then about kind of how this ties in with resistance and what that means and looks like sure so, yeah yeah um the first one I'm gonna do is the first one that I the first political song that I wrote it was at Camosun in my first year, and um, I performed it as one of my um, one of my projects, and that's really what got me noticed in the community and got me the support and started pushing me. Yeah, my friend um, Mark gave me this guitar so that I could perform, and it was just yeah, really great. But it's called "What's Next." I've performed it a lot at Orange Shirt Day, um, so yeah. The buzzer stains your teeth, what a classic Indian You shiver as you drift away for the smile of their children What you knew yesterday is the page already burned The wingspan grows thicker yet around you The globe still Are those feathers on your head really true? I doubt you had to earn them, but it's so easy for you. You won the war for this land we were on first And now all it is to you is a big piece of dirt
feel to like perform that right now like, it was with everything it was good yeah. yeah it it felt really good I was thinking two moments back at the ledge just like screaming all together screaming like together united will never be defeated right mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. so empowering to be there with everyone doing it mm-hmm. yeah it's mm-hmm. an it's incredible, yeah. I, it's funny, like, the beginning of the song, What's Next, it originally meant, like, what like what the fuck is going to happen next? Like, seriously, you keep doing this? And then at the end, it kind of turned out to, like, okay, what's next? Like, what are we going to do? Like, mm-hmm. there's so much amazing Indigenous youth and allies and everything in between, like, that are you know, standing up and doing Mm. so much. So what's next? Like, there's so much possibility. I'm going to do one. It's called Oh Sisters. Um, Yeah. So this one is, uh, I wrote a few years ago. I wrote it for the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls. Um, Yeah, I... um, haven't performed it much just because it is super emotional, but um, yeah, I think, yeah, I'll go. <laughs>
Yeah. <laughs> How does that feel? Good, yeah. I um miss some lyrics there, but just think it's hard to get out sometimes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's a mm -hmm. lot, but what was going through you when you wrote that song? Oh my gosh, I think it was during the Me Too movement and I remember my prof at Camosun, who I love dearly, he shaped me, who I am today, but I remember he was saying um, like how so many women he saw like on Facebook that almost like almost every woman that he had on Facebook was posting and saying like Me Too and he's like and those who didn't say it like who aren't strong enough and it hit a core in me I'm like I didn't post me too but that does not mean that I'm not strong enough like mm -hmm. and I didn't say that to him but it just struck a nerve right and what's an emotion you write from often um anger for a lot of it especially just with you know political songs because our emotions have a purpose right and anger results from recognizing injustice and so you, I go home with my fist shaking in the air, like, gotta get this out, and so it's definitely helped me deal with that a lot. Mm -hmm. I feel like I'm definitely not an angry person, so it's so good that I have this um, cathartic thing to get it out, like, and driving around Victoria, too. Do you feel like your music is innately political? Um, not entirely. I do have a lot of songs that are just about shit that I've gone through, mm -hmm. right? Like, we all, all musicians have songs about breakups and, yeah, just, like, dealing with what it, what it is, what it means to be, like, a Indigenous person in Canada, dealing with different addictions and seeing that with your family and, yeah, it's just being human, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. And being able to capture that, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, put, put music behind it. Why do you, or do you feel like music is um, an act of resistance? Absolutely, yeah. I feel like it. Music moves people in ways that can't be explained, right? And it's just, I think of those songs that just like lift you up so good, like it just at certain parts and. It, it's so inspiring, not not just for musicians, but for everyone, right? And so, yeah, definitely. Um, I need to get some stuff out there, mm -hmm. <laughs> for mm -hmm. sure. And why, like, yeah, why do you think playing music matters? Um, sharing it? Yeah, I don't know. I think it, it really brings communities together, especially, like, I think of... Métis families and jigs getting together with just a million string instruments and dancing around and you know that's like the best part of life is just being with people that you love and expressing joy and yeah mm -hmm. for sure. Mm -hmm. And what would you hope that your music would offer to people? Um, I guess an outlet. Um, I hope it struck a nerve in some some place that hasn't really been struck before just through um through the media or through chatting or whatever <laughs> I don't know mm -hmm. yeah totally mm -hmm. um okay well do you want to play 
like two more songs? Yeah, I can. Does that sound good? Totally. Okay. And then we can wrap it up and yeah. Okay. Sounds Perfect. good. Perfect. Um So this one is called Feed the Beast. Um it I wrote it as like the beast being capitalism and like the government. It sounds so <laughs> I love it. <laughs> but it it also my when I played it for my parents, they were just like, "Oh, we're talking about about addiction, aren't you?" It's like, "No, but it does make sense both ways for sure." So that really taught me that everyone can perceive a song in a different way just depending on what they're going through in their lives and it'll help them just, you know, yeah, confirmation bias. <laughs> like, Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so yeah. First it burns your throat, then down into your belly. Your head begins to flow, and body feels like vermicelli. And when you wake up wondering, no way your night is gone. It now belongs to the thief of the night, the selfish spirit.